0: I'm going to introduce the introducer of our guest, of not really not our guest speaker tonight, but our special keynote speaker. I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say about his book. And to introduce him is his very close, and longtime friend, Mary Ann Dougherty, who I met at this Writers' Conference in 1992. Please welcome Mary Ann Dougherty. I've been here so long, I'm using a cane now. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you know you're an old-timer, an old, old old alumni. Okay, so I'm, I'm here, obviously, to introduce Monty Schulz, our fearless leader, the owner of this conference, and an incredible writer. Monty has written a book called Metropolis. It is about a eugenics world war in a... We're not sure where it is. He's created this fictional world that feels familiar, but just isn't exactly. It's incredible. I know when he was writing this, he, he came up with hundreds and hundreds of words for food, music, um, cars. So when you read this book, it's got all this rich detail. You know what, you, you, you can follow it, you know what's going along, but it's just slightly different. Anyway, it's an incredibly, incredibly written book. Um, it has been called a Modern Literary Masterpiece. One of the people that reviewed this book called it that, and I agree with that. And when you go downstairs to buy the book and have him sign it for you, which I hope you all will, um, there's uh, also copies of his other book, Crossing Eden, which is, that's my all-time favorite, even though I love Metropolis, Crossing Eden's close to my heart, and if you've never read that, you should get that too, and he'll sign it for you tonight. So without further ado, Monty Schultz.
1: Thanks for being here. Um, I am so tired. I can't, you know, usually this is how I feel at the end of the week. You know, we have four days, and you're like, oh, man, I'm just because people go to morning workshops, evening workshops, pirate workshops. But I've only been here for four hours. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I must be getting old, <laughs> I don't know. Um, all right, so the story of this book, the story of the writing is sort of strange in that, um, um, was it 2019 we had the conference last? Was that it, 2019? Yeah, so I was here and I would published five books at that point and, uh, and everyone's talking about books and agents and publishing and I was wandering through the conference for five days, thinking, um, I don't care about books anymore.
0: <laughs>
1: I seriously didn't. I had been sitting in front of my computer for, what, at that point, 25, 30 years, writing, and uh, I was over it. I was doing music, which Mac knows is not completely fulfilling because it doesn't fill the time. Getting those guys to the studio and everything, is just, and it costs a lot of money to record songs. So I you know unless you have the McTally trip okay so uh, um and uh but what was interesting is I I was thinking that I was over writing books yet uh simultaneously I was bringing an idea for a book to uh when I went back to my house in Hawaii after the conference and and the reason was is that I realized that oh although I was tired of writing books it just music or, or nothing else really um Turn them off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now I forgot where I was because I'm so tired. Am I at the conference? <laughs> it's a writers' conference. Wow. Yeah. Well, it was not exactly what I said. But I was gonna. I was. Gonna, <laughs> I was gonna bring a book over to work on a book called Penny Dreams and it was set in, some of it was set in Hawaii and um, so, which is kind of contradictory to the idea I wasn't in a book anymore, but I realized that writing, writing filled my time better because you have to work on it day after day after day, right, theoretically it doesn't go. I always describe writing like uh, uh, jobs are uh, like a ball that's rolling, okay, and you join the job, but if you quit the job or you get fired or whatever, it still goes on, but writing is like kicking a pillow, right? It doesn't go forward unless you do it, right? <laughs> So, uh, you have to have a schedule. So, um, that summer I worked for about a month and a half on Penny Dreams, and I just didn't really have any ideas. But I went back to this idea I had called Metropolis. That I, it turns out my first file, save file, I discovered this this past winter when I looked on a really old iBook. My first save file was June 11th, 2001, which was before I'd finished these other books I published. Which is sort of odd. Like, was it that far? I mean, I did find on my computer here in town, 2003. But even then, at that time, it was at the time I started rewriting, it was 16 years before. So imagine going away from a book for 16 years. So why did I? Well, um, it's because I couldn't, there are a couple of things I couldn't figure out. How my main character, a college senior named Julian Bream, could be studying the Greeks and the Romans in a fictional republic. I didn't really understand how that worked, and I also didn't understand the geography of the fictional republic, given that there is a Mediterranean. It turns out they called it the Southern Sea, but uh, so so where is this all taking place? And then, um, as far as I'm studying the Greeks and the Romans, I went by Ray Bradbury's adage: "Was it why? Because I say it so." <laughs> and then, and then in the summer. I realized, uh, well, I, was, yeah, I realized that well, the book actually takes place in what we know as France, um, and the metropolis would be Paris, and the holy river Livorno would be the Seine, and the provinces, eastern provinces, would be Germany and Eastern Europe and whatever. And so, uh, as I was writing the book, um, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine from UC Santa Barbara, um, and he said, "Well, what happened in your book is that." is that history bifurcated 1,500 years ago and created this republic. So when people ask me, so when is it taking place? Well, it's their time. So it corresponds uh, technologically, culturally to maybe around World War I, the 20s, turn of the last century, something like that. In that their technology is different. They don't have airplanes, but they have radioactive shells. And they name things differently. They, they call machine guns mechanical rifles. Um, I made up a name for... A, a uh, vacuum cleaner, a motor, uh, let's see, a motor dust inhaler. Okay. <laughs> I've asked people what, is, what do you think that is, they have no idea, well, what? And then the names of cars, of course, have to be different because there's no Ford and GM and everything, right? So they, they you know, a, a Swan, a Cosmopolitan, a, an Algren, a Model 7, uh, so a lot of different names of cars. That's why some of the food is different, but not all. Um, so let me read you briefly what I opened the book with. When I, I found this file from 2001, and, and it's, it's the same. So the book opens. So this, is what, this was my idea, and then I'll explain to you how, where I got the idea. So I read this because Marianne always asked me to read it. <laughs> right? So even now, I dream of the airships emerging from those gray clouds at sunset like dark fingers of God on a copper sky above the holy river Livorna. I can hear distant cathedral bells announcing jubilee across the marrying districts of the metropolis, see myriad flocks of pigeons rising from the dome of eternity above the tumult and cheer where a grand civilization gathered to worship its glorious victory over a race of beasts and the end of war. What fools we were, and deceivers too. Ignorant, not just of our misdeeds, but of our abysmal lack of virtue. Dishonor belonged to each of us without distinction yet. Who was willing to concede this guilt? Not one among us, and that is a bitter truth. 60 years of slaughter and mayhem, millions eradicated, history itself diverted from a soaring enlightenment to degradation and shame, both the corrupt and the innocent swallowed up by darkness and death, and the arrival of the giant airship, simply an unexpected denouement to the sorriest of narratives. But I don't intend this to be another morbid tale of war and sorrow. What would be the point of it? We've known abject misery for more than a century now, and surely nobody needs to be reminded. No, I simply refuse to wallow any longer in gloom and nightmares. Rather, I have a love story to tell, a beautiful love story that begins one evening on a cold, blustery beach far from the great metropolis. So that's how the book began. So, um, So how did I write, how and why did I write a book about eugenics? Well... Uh, In my 20s novel, and other novels, I have, it's, uh, the characters are more, it's more domestic situation, normal people leading sort of below the uh, midline lives, okay, lower middle class people, as we have interior drama, which I thought was fine. But when you read a book like Sophie's Choice, you realize that sometimes issues are bigger than Who's getting divorced, and who's sad, and who has, you know, somebody died, a relative died, or whatever, Um, or uh, people get divorced. All those are serious dramas in our lives, but sometimes the drama is bigger than that. And I wanted to write a novel that had a really big backdrop. So I have the same interior drama. I have uh, my my college senior, Julian Breen, meets a girl and falls in love. And he also adores his family, and they love him. And he has a roommate, Freddie, alcoholic, funny, puzzle solver though, really a smart guy, but drinks too much. Okay, and uh, not a good student either. <laughs> Julian is just okay. Um, so it's a college novel too. But uh, so I have all I have all the interior drama that is in that, but against the backdrop of a eugenics war. So is there anybody who doesn't know what eugenics, eugenics are? Raise your hand. Okay, so the term eugenics was invented by Francis J. Galton in Britain in the uh, late 19th century, and it means well-born. And the idea was to um, the idea was to improve society by educating and mating with the best people. Um, it seems logical, um, and then it came to the United States and never, th- never mind Nazi Germany, came to the United States, where right away, we thought, okay, well, first of all, we gotta get rid of the people we don't like. And I'm not talking about minorities and, uh, and, and Jews and whatever like that, no, it had to do with uh, hillbillies, inbred families, you know, uh, get rid of them all. And they made lists through different organizations um, uh, of people that needed to go. And eugenics was taught in high school and in colleges, very popular. It was accepted. There's a, in this uh, little story I published in the Fifth Fedora that you see down there, called um, from, the, uh, from the Journal of Dr. Edward Charvari, there's a character who describes what he calls the logic of eugenics, which is like you have a garden that's not doing well, all right, pluck out the bad stuff, encourage the good. It makes sense. And it said, every our society needs a gardener. And so, but his professor asked, who's gonna be the gardener? Okay, and what happened in America was that um, there were a lot of people who saw that eugenics was not really a good <laughs> idea. It was not gonna be completely beneficial to everybody. And uh, so the organization in America that put an end to it in America was the U.S. Census Bureau. They refused to give information. And, and, and people in favor of eugenics, I'm talking about uh, FDR, and uh, uh, Margaret Sanger, and Winston Churchill, all the luminaries at the time, all believed in, and followed eugenics, because it seemed logical. Well, so then what happened is it stopped in America, and there are, two big, there are two big groups in the World Eugenics Society. One was Americans with our leader, I can't remember who it was, and, and his number two. And then there was someone in Germany, and his number two was a Dr. Josef Mengele, the angel of Auschwitz. And so what happened was they said, well, we can't do this stuff in America, but they're making good progress in Germany. And of course, uh, eugenics met its uh, low point at Auschwitz, where they could see the logical extension of it. So um, in my book, they begin with a great separation. They decide, what are we going to do here? Society is suffering. And so they name the people they don't like. And, and we always talk about the word bandied about all the time is very popular is genocide, genocide, genocide. Eugenics is more pernicious and more dangerous than genocide, because in genocide, you can see the group that's being targeted. Eugenics targets anyone you don't like, anyone. They discovered, so they have this little bug, they, this, this chemist um, in a small town discovered, he called it speriosis, and they had testing centers, which means they don't like it. Let's say they see Marianne Dougherty, they don't like her political views, they run her through the testing and she has speriosis, she's gone. So they made a. So in the book, they have a separation. They sent, put a, They emptied three districts of the metropolis. A million people put them on trains, sent them to the eastern provinces, into the hinterlands, hoping they just all die. And thousands did. And then, uh, in the book, forty years later, in the backstory of this book is that um, they, the society still had problems, so they decided to to um, create uh, a war. Uh, a, a, a purpose. Nations do that. We do it. You name an enemy to uh, unify the people. And uh, the other, the other, the other. In this case it was the undesirables out in Eastern province. So they start a war. and The war goes on for 60 years. In the books, it's been going on millions. They, they said the counting machines in the metropolis gave up counting how many people are killed. And the other side started to fight back and creates an endless war. Uh, so so, in fact, what I'll do is um, I'll read you a passage that explains the war, okay? And incidentally, I, I, you know, Marianne cautioned me when I, I read this at the book selling a while ago. It's not, strictly speaking, a war novel. I am just happen to read this, right? Karen's shaking her head because it's true. It's just a lot going on. I have to arbitrarily choose something that describes a book. And this gives kind of a, back, a background. There are other things I could read, but whatever, right? I'm up here, and I have to choose something, okay? Uh, So, uh, and I like it, because it's it's kind of funny, too. Um, So, my character, Julian Breen, has gone into what they call the desolation. By the way, here's an analogy. I've asked, people ask me, so what would this be like? I mean, how can you have a war that's killed millions of people, I go, okay. Um, All right, so, in World War II, the US in two theaters, lost about 400, 450,000 dead, all right? an enormous number, right? And the British lost 300-something thousand, and the French, you know, who we like to call those cheese-eating surrender monkeys, right? I don't know how many people understand this, the French lost 100,000 dead in two weeks when we said they weren't fighting at all. 100,000 dead in two weeks. So clearly they were doing some fighting, right? And they actually saved the British at Dunkirk. There was a French division that, that allowed itself to be annihilated by two German groups to save, to allow the, the English to escape. They are all killed to a man. So there was a lot of fighting. So, so, and of course, accepted here is that we won the war at D-Day, right? That does everybody, we, we won the war. Okay, the Soviets lost 25 million people in World War II. They lost 25 million dead. Not only that, but they killed three cores of the German army. So when we talk about D-Day, just imagine that three quarters of the German army in Western Europe. There would have been no D-Day. Okay, so the suffering is on a grand scale and I wanted this to be on a grand scale. So my character Julian goes to the desolation. You read the book, you'll find out how and why. So he's meeting. Um, he's meeting. Who's this? It's. Uh, what's he called? Some major, or whatever. I can't remember anything. In my book anymore. What is his name? Where is his name here? Okay. His name is. Uh, oh, Colonel Watson. Okay. Uh, tell me something, young man. Do you know why we're out here? I told him to protect our civilization, sir. To def- defend our common purpose. He laughed at me. I hope that's not a serious answer because if it is, I'm very disappointed. I'd have thought Otto Paley would have sent somebody smarter than that. I bristled slightly. Was he testing me somehow? All Right, sir? We're out here to kill everyone on the other side of the fence. He smiled. Now that's more like it. These are not moral issues, son. They're imperatives. Do you understand the distinction? I believe so, sir. You mean that we do what we do, not necessarily because we believe it's right, but rather to serve our own best interests, whatever they might be. Exactly. If a million people on that side need to die for us to put hot soup on our tables at dinnertime, sir, and hot soup is vital to our national survival, we'll kill a million people. Let me tell you something, Mr. Breen. My father was your age when our republic decided that life as we knew it had stagnated. Our growing fields were inadequate, Our metals had diminished. Our very spirits were in need of revitalizing. They decided the world had grown grown small and petty. Our world and something had to be done. The nation required a directive that expanded our common purpose to include those provinces in the East we had considered empty and useless in that decade of the Great Separation. It's why we sent those trains to the East with, with the unfit and the unwell. Nothing was out there. Nothing out there was worthy of our attention or desires. Nobody in the Republic could have ever conceived what those people made of their fate out in the hinterlands. I suppose we just expect them to die. They were, after all, intellectually and physically ill-equipped, right? Feeble-minded? Whether we kept them or sent them away didn't matter, did it? Because our medical directorate told us they were all going to disappear. Isn't that true? The colonel stared at me. He had a pencil and tapped it on the desk. I heard the rainfall thickening outside, drumming on the tent roof. I nodded, it's what the books say, sir. Well, damn those books, young man. They did not die. They did not fail. They did not prove our medical director correct in dispersing them into the wilderness. For 40 years, those people found water and food and shelter by trading with the natural inhabitants of those useless fields. Then they made tools and built houses and towns and windmills. They planted those fields to grain in orchards and cultivated livestock. They designed and constructed machines and mined for gold and copper and iron. They dredged the buck around swamps and cleared forests and drilled oil wells and constructed electric grids. Mr. Bream, they were not unfit in. Un- our. Well, not defective at all. No, sir. My father left my young mother at home and enlisted to the Simoa Brigade, where he trained under Commander Maxime Cristobal during the first directive. He was told that our common purpose expected the reacquisition of Darius, Solomon, and Fabian provinces from settlements of the undesirables. We ordered them to leave, to give up their houses and home orchards, their stores and schools, their holy churches. Some did, plenty of them. The others we killed by the hundreds with the seam robber grade. My father told me stories of needful slaughter and pillaging, instructions to terrorize but command of the status imperium to save our republic. Inevitable, necessary. Then some who came, left came back to rec- reclaim by force of arms what we'd forced them to give up. And we killed them too, thousands. We took those provinces from them. Everything they built on their own, we took. We pushed them back mile after mile. All this geography we thought was worthless, they'd made a life from. God, how they'd worked. No matter. The Judicial Council determined by Fiat that it all belonged to us anyhow, but the right of imperial domain. domain. Then our soldiers, our army crossed the Fatoma River at Obregon, and Madalena, and Vanderholt. We killed everyone we saw. That first year of the war, we killed over 200,000 using radioactive shells and hydrocyanic gas. The next spring, we pierced the Florian border, and the war spread across the eastern provinces uh, un- until they fought back. We were unprepared for that, the sheer ferocity of their defense, their technical expertise, the weapons they had were better than ours, their tactics were uncanny. We lost entire brigades, Xanthus and Leighton and Simwa, our Feynman's men. My father had both his legs amputated at Colina. I never knew him as anything but a cripple in that iron wheelchair. He felt we had to win this war or his legs were sacrificed for nothing. Redemption for our suffering, our suffering, mind you, not theirs could only come through winning this war and annihilating those monsters on the other side of the fence, as you so aptly put it. I was horrified. Yes, sir. I joined Lieutenant Commander Solis with the Volkov Brigade when I was 17 years old to honor my father, whom I dearly loved. I swore an oath to him that I'd see to the end of this war. My life has been spent out here, young man, more than 40 years. What's it all meant? They have to die, Mr. Bream. Every last one of them, if necessary. So. now, the other thing is, I wrote back in 2003 uh, 50 pages when I quit. I quit at a scene, um, just the Julian telling, reminding, remember, remembering being in a little cafe with his father when he was little. And then that's where I stopped. So I picked, so what happened was, in August of 2019, I was, I sort of lost energy on Penny Dreams and went to Metropolis, and I started writing it. And I um, I picked up at that scene, and I wrote uh, what, 600 and about 610, 620 pages in, in nine months. Uh, I'd never written a book that fast in my life. Um, so how did I do that? I had a really interesting writing schedule, okay, which I still do now. It's sort of, um, I had to write at least one page every morning before I ate or drank anything. Okay. So some people say, yeah, I'd start start my uh, cup of coffee. or I had nothing, super hungry, super thirsty. (laughs) And what I did was, so let's say the previous page ended, I would count lines down, ended with like say 19, uh, 19 sentences down. Then the next page, before I could eat, had to go down to the bottom, over and come down and write to nineteen. I counted them, right? After twenty minutes or something. I'm on eight. How long? How many? I have to do how many? I've got it's got fifteen, I got got 18 I got eighteen, I got three more to go. Super hungry. Ham sandwich, ham sandwich, okay. <laughs> really, I gotta eat something. Just finish it. And so I did. I in nine months I missed three mornings and I was out of town at the time. I uh, wrote on you know, Thanksgiving morning, Christmas morning, New Year's Day, my birthday. I just, I, and I would write in the afternoon then two or three pages. One day I wrote, uh, I think, four pages, and uh, the important thing is to keep the narrative going. You know, I wouldn't write until I was really tired because I had to, I, I don't, this is kind of weird. Um, uh, I get asked, so who is my editor? I don't have an editor like that. I didn't need anybody to look at it and tell me what needed to be done. I'm really good at editing my own stuff. Somehow, maybe it's because I read a lot, but I—it uh, it, just—it didn't really need anything. Uh, when I was done with the manuscript, I went and cut some stuff. You know, stuff I thought was too long, extra paragraph at the end of a chapter or something. Yeah, I don't need that. Cut it. I went through first of all. I went and cut everything I could, and after that, the book doesn't make sense, right? So, so that was it. So I ended up with uh, six hundred and sixty-eight pages, um, but that writing schedule really worked, and. Um, the other thing that was weird about writing it, my publisher asked me if this has ever happened. He asked me, Have you ever written that fast? I said, No, but I, the weird thing is that it's like uh, the muses are whispering in my ear the entire time. I never had any delay, any block. I should tell you this because I say it every year. <laughs> the idea uh, how many people have felt like they've had a writer's block? Anybody ever? Yeah? Okay, okay. Okay. So I got to tell you, my dad said, um, there's no such thing. He said, only amateurs get writer's block, professionals can't afford it. <laughs> okay. Which is a truism, right? And so when I, I come to the conference, and I tell people that, that writer's block, the perception of writer's block is two things, fear of writing something bad, and two, just simply being lazy, all right? Just simply being lazy. Because if you're my dad, and you have to have six dailies in a Sunday, uh, every week for 50 years, how do you do that? Or columnists, right, how do they do that? Because they don't get writer's block, they don't, they don't allow themselves to worry about if it's not good and they don't allow themselves to be lazy or they lose their job. So as novelists or short story writers or poets, you, you can follow that adage, you just write. And so I tell people that, that something bad on the page, a bad page is better than no, no page. You can always get something out of it. Maybe there's a sense or two. It's not like I thought everything was great when I was writing. Most of us thought it was pretty good, but there there's stuff, there are days I had where, I thought, well, that wasn't that good. I don't know. And the other thing I did, by the way, was uh, so how many of you uh, so how many people write on a computer? Right? How many people write on a computer? Okay, how many of you when you write have something, then you print it out to read it? How many people do that? Yeah, okay. So here so that just seems to me like a waste of paper. Plus you change something, what do you do? Print it again. So uh, but I discovered that I would make a save from my first page and whatever like that, and I save it to Gmail, and then I read Metropolis uh, during the day if I'm out at lunch or something um, on my iPhone, and I would read at night on the iPad while I was watching a show or reading some other book. I would just read it. So So the... The point, the point of, um, of printing it out is to see it in a different format. That's okay, but I'm already seeing it because Gmail is, even though I write in Word, Gmail is not Word. So I would see mistakes, and Marianne noticed this. A couple other people they noticed that they saw s- mistakes they never saw on the screen, and so uh, on. Metropolis, I write on a desktop Mac, but I don't read it on the computer ever. I just write on it. I just write. I write forward, and then say at night. Even last night, or a killer. I told myself I saved and sent, and I'm done. And then I was upstairs, and I saw a couple of things. Yeah, I should go down and fix that, or I should add that line. I definitely because well, I remember maybe just go downstairs. All the lights were off. I went downstairs, turned the computer on, dee, 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 save, save to Gmail, and come back upstairs again. Okay, so that's how I would do it. So I would see mistakes, and uh, I would go and, and go onto the computer and and fix them. But the weird thing was is that they were. They were hard to see on the computer. It's like I, I'm looking right through the lines on the iPhone or on the pad. I see it really clearly. Uh, so uh, and, and and now on the iPad, I can turn it into Word. It still looks different. So I can I, I do all the so I do the editing, not the actual editing, but I, I do the proofing or whatever the reading of it on the computer and on the iPhone. Really, I stand in line at uh, Subway or in restaurants or something, just reading my book. I did it for nine months. So I really got a sense of, of how it worked, uh, and parts that didn't work. Well, there weren't many of those, but still, it was. Uh... So I just had a, the weird experience of, of ideas just floating into my head all the time. I got stuck on something for a day or so, and I was, uh... and then it's like something, it whispered in my ear, do this. OK, oh, wait, that fixes this, this, and this. Oh, interesting, and then I had the weird experience where my character Julian was going up in a tower to meet an artist, and uh, I just thought, well, he's gotta do something here, so he's gonna meet a painter, an artist up, up top. So he goes, he goes up the stairs, and uh, I don't know anything about this person, right? And then uh, uh, he knocks on the door and waits, um, he remembers this adage, his mother said, allow for a minute before you knock again because uh, you don't know where the person might be. We cannot fly after all, okay, from downstairs. So, because in my house, by the way, I have a, I'm up in the top of the house, people ring the doorbell and then like you know, 20 seconds later, 15 seconds later, they ring it again. Like what? I'm not standing in the hall outside the door, okay? Give me a break, <laughs> Jeez be so impatient. Anyway, so he goes in and the woman says, uh, hello, Julian. I'm, I won't tell you the person is. As she introduced himself, her, herself to Julian, she's introducing herself to me. I didn't know who she was until I typed her name. And it wasn't until even a month later, I recognized the connections uh, that, uh, to somebody... In the book. I can't tell you. Might read the book. And so, uh, but it's it was a total mystery. Like, How did that happen? It's so weird. That's what the book was like for me to write. And and the and this sort of sequel companion I'm writing right now, Undercity is sort of the same thing. Ideas just come to me. It just I just it just flow into my head, changing words. Um, so, I also uh, I tried to say this a little bit earlier this evening, but um, you know and knock on Marianne's head there, but you shouldn't listen to me about reading super widely. I read a lot of different kinds of books and they all inform my writing. I really believe, I think I said earlier, but, but maybe not, but um, most writing is like all the writers, they, they wear like jumpsuits, they all wear the same clothes. right? Most people just write the same way, they just do. Uh, but there are writers who write completely differently. So I read, oh let's see, anybody know the author Emily Henry? Emily Henry, right? Emily Henry, okay. and 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 Colleen Hoover, right? sells a billion copies of books. Um, I read I read one of each of their books. I read uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I read Midnight. I read uh, or Twilight. And then I read um, I read all Steele, Steele, the uh, Stephen King books. I read John Grisham. I like him. I read John Sanford. I read James E. Burke. I read Michael Connelly novels. I read a lot of crime novels. And and I'm reading a Clive Cussler novel right now, which is a uh, um, I like him, but I also read, so I read, uh, what was it, Sue Miller's Monogamy, Monon- Monotony, Monotony. It's really more, really tall. I just read these books, and Marianne just loves, just so I can be, have something up on her, because uh, she won't read the books that I read.
0: Uh, <laughs> I
1: waste your yeah, don't wait. She doesn't want to waste her time reading somebody really good. Okay, so uh, so I've been reading. the Last couple of years, I've been reading uh, Paul Bowles and reading uh, uh, the Chilean writer Roberto Bolaño. I learn from those writers. They don't write like anybody else. Especially Bolaño does not write like anybody you know. And of course, I read Cormac McCarthy. And he's dead now. I knew he was going to die eventually here because he's super old. Same with James <laughs> Lee Burke. He's going to go. No, seriously, Burke's going to go next. He's like ninety. And so so I read. Um, I, I can't even remember all the books I've read because, and, and I also here's what I try to do, I also try to read the classics, and that doesn't mean Jane Austen, okay, it doesn't mean that. It means I read Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, I'd never read that before, um, I'm reading Judd Hersey's uh, The War Lover, um, almost they're like books from my dad's library, so I'm reading present and old and, and, and contemporary writers. Um, I read this woman, T.J. Newman's uh, Falling and Drowning. She made like a gazillion dollars of her books. They're okay, good stories, but you know, she can't really write, but it's pretty good. It's okay. No, they're okay. She, it's clear that she can't really write, but, but she has a good idea for the story. And the second one I thought was better than the first, but it was okay. It was, I enjoyed it, right? So, uh, but you can't, you can't knock novels unless you read them. You can't, we can't read everything. But seriously, I, I, I think I said earlier, but people read very, their reading is very narrow. They don't realize it. But they do. So, so what do I get? Like like the esteemed Jack I was asking me like a few years ago, he goes, yeah, we don't understand why you read Stephen King and John Grisham. It's like, because I learn how to, how to move a story forward. So Metropolis is a literary novel, but things happen all the time. I read, now Marianne loves this book, but I read uh, uh, The Secret History, which is like one of those boring books I've ever read. And oh, but she writes so beautiful, OK, well, something has to happen in that book, right? Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's 600 pages. Oh my god, what? No reason to have anything happen. Okay? (laughs) Wow. So, uh, but I read it, right? I read it because, you know, I have to read those books. I didn't have to read uh, Donna Tarch. She's okay, but uh, still. um, Yeah, I just, look, it all feeds in as a writer. It doesn't matter what you're writing, it all feeds into how you're writing. Okay, so we might say, so you might say, so what do you get out of reading the the women's novels? Okay, the idea of interior relationships and how women talk to each other and whatever. what do I have that Cormac uh, McCarthy doesn't? I have a scene where um, little girls eating eating supper. My Carrie Julian comes in and asks her, so, uh, hi, Delia. Hi, Julian. What are you reading? Poof is the cat. Is it good? If you're a baby. <laughs> 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 Nina won't let me read anything else. She spills. No, I don't. Uh, Angel and the Dove. It was an accident. OK, still. still. So uh, sorry. Um, those characters are not in. McCarthy 's books, okay but I, I wanted to have both I wanted to have a domestic scene in a novel where millions of people get killed all right um, so all of this reading feeds into it I'm sure that's how I was able to write this book in nine months and have it be literary and have it I also am reading so I read these crime novels if I would say say the women 's novels are you know they'll talk about what kind of lipstick they're buying and you know, what kind of you know, magazines they're reading, whatever. At the same time, in the men's books, all they have is these elaborate acronyms for weapons and all that. They're definitely men's novels and women's novels. You know, and the women would say, no, no, men can read this. Okay, would you read this? Well, no, okay, there you go, okay. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, there's one of the people who's at the conference, was Amy, Was her name, Amy something, was there Amy, I can't remember her name anymore. Amy, whatever she... Anyway, she's when she was at the conference, she was asking me, so... I, my boys were little, and she goes, so, do they? Ha, are you having your boys read like The Wind in the Willows and, uh, and uh, A Wrinkle in Time? I go, oh, those are girls' books. <laughs> she goes, no, they're not. Okay, do your girls watch Godzilla movies? No. Okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. I get it, I get it. My boys are supposed to read the girls' novels, but your girls won't watch the boys' movies and boys' books, okay? I see where this is going, okay? So, uh... <laughs> So, uh, but I found it is important to educate myself. And so ultimately, without sounding, too, without sounding too snide about it, I really don't care what anyone else reads, especially at this point. I don't care. I'm not, I'm not um, in my workshop, people are saying, oh, you gave us this, I, I've been reading everything on your, on your reading list. I go, what? <laughs> my reading list? Yeah, you had a reading list. I don't remember. No, those brooks you brought in. Oh, that wasn't a reading list. They just brought stuff in to read. Oh, well, I read them all. Well, <laughs> good. <laughs> Nobody expected. I am, I, am, I am the least evangelistic person you'll ever meet for telling people to read. People rise right. They come and say, oh, you, oh you, should, you definitely have to read this book. I never do that. I never do that because of probably years of, of doing that and have people that don't read the book. They just don't. They want me to read their book. Years ago, I had a friend who said... Uh, she said, have you read Angel's Ashes? No. Oh, you should definitely read that. Well, I was reading like 10 books at the time, right? So on, on my nightstand and everything. And she, this, this friend of mine re- read, I think Angel's Ashes was the one book she read that year. Okay. Well, you should definitely read that. Okay. No. Okay. I'm not going to read it. Sounds interesting, but I have a lot of other things to read. And sometimes it seems good. And I just forget about it, right? Because I have these others. But... Um, so I could tell you, uh, read uh, Roberto Bolaño or read uh, Paul Bowles, but if you're not going to read it, okay, it doesn't, you know, whatever. It would be your loss, not me. Fantastic writer um, called the greatest writer to come out of uh, South America since Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, or it's like, it's like Karmic McCarthy dies, and he says, oh, I love Carmen McCarthy. I read The Road. Okay, it's like 200 pages. Wow. You get a gold star for that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot, he yeah, has like what, eight books or something? They're all really good. Well, I read one of them, okay. Um, so, uh, I don't know, or do you read Joan Didion? Yeah, I read uh, Your Magical Thinking. Okay, well she had like eight books, came before that, okay. Yeah, but I read that, okay. Wow, <laughs> right. So, um, uh, I don't know. I But, so getting back to Metropolis, it was, um, it's, uh, it is a complicated book, and I did, and I wrote also, yes, I should say this. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews this year, and I just forget what I'm asked. Sometimes it's better if I'm prompted. Um, I had no, no outline, no plot figured out. I Oh, yeah, this is the best way to put it. You know, everyone says literally. It's like a meme now, okay? But I literally made, made the book up sentence by sentence. I never knew what was gonna happen. The book 668 pages, I, I thought it'd be like 400. Okay, it has four sections. Did you read, Robin, you read it? Yeah, okay, so um, it has four sections and, and, the, uh, and they're separate, I mean, they're different. So Julian is in, there's a group of characters from the first and none of them are carried off into the second and none of those are carried into the third and you come back to the Metropolis again. I just, I thought the last part of the book was gonna be the shortest, ends up being the longest. Because I just, I, I seriously, it sounds funny to say I just made it up. I didn't have, I never planned anything. I just made it up as I wrote it day after day after day. Um, the miracles, that actually worked, right? And I, because I don't usually, I've never written like that before. That's my publisher asked me, have you ever done a book like that? No, it seems impossible. Um, but it's just all, it was a really easy book to write. And now the... Uh, Sequel, not a, it's sort of a sequel and kind of a companion. My professor, uh, Stephen Alabac from UCSB, who um, I dedicate, one of the two people I dedicated to, my two writing, writing mentors, uh, Gerald Rosen from Sonoma State, whose first novel had the best title of any book ever, my favorite, Blues for a Dying Nation, right, written in the 60s. I just love that title, Blues for a Dying Nation. Um, and um, uh, But Steve Alabac uh, just, um, he, he liked how the whole thing just flowed forward. You know, and he, he agreed you don't really have to have an outline. People will tell you, I know some writers, they write sketches of their characters, so you get to know them better. Honestly, to me, that seems like a colossal waste of time, but, but it's not really, if you want to do that, that's fine. Uh, I know some writers do it, I just don't. I just, uh, it's not like I'm a, a lazy writer, but I don't write. Yeah, uh, and books should be about language too, right? So I get asked all the time, do I write screenplays? No, I just, I don't see what I would get out of that because um, they're not about language, it's about story and dialogue. And I can write story, and I can write dialogue, I just like how the language sounds. I also don't like books on tape, I find it hard to, to listen. By the way, if anybody comes to my workshop, I would really appreciate if you bring a copy of what you want to read so I can read along with you. I, should, I wasn't even here, for. The, I don't know what happened, I was tired. I guess I had to get out of here, so uh, then I realized, oh I probably should have been here for that. Okay. Um, yeah, that's my workshop's about voice and style. Just to, to say that, okay, Truman Capote said that um, uh, there are a thousand stories. A thousand stories. It's how they're told that separates one from the other. So the writers, if you think about that, we know in general are known for how they write, right? Everyone knows the spare style of Hemingway, the convoluted style of, uh, of Faulkner, um, and, and just those type of writers. They're, they're, people are known for their style. Um, and so that's my workshop, is about finding the right voice. You have to have the right voice to, to tell a story. I kind of write the same way I always have, although this book was interesting in that I, um, I wrote the whole thing in first person. I've never had a first person novel. I thought that if you write in first person, you can't be as, as a, a flowery with language, but it's not true at all. Uh, so it was just how I wrote it. It just seemed a little bit more immediate. And you hear the thing about the the unreliable narrator. I don't know what that even means. (laughs) Wouldn't it be the third person being unreliable, too? (laughs) Just just tell the story and read the book, okay? Quit critiquing the narrative. (laughs) So, uh, um, anyhow. I guess you can answer any questions is am I missing stuff it's hard to know. I'm so tired my brain isn't working anymore. I could probably write but I can't I can speak about this. I did so many interviews this year. Um, I don't know as soon as I go back to my room I'll remember 100 things I should have said about this book. Can do a Q&A now. Yeah, we can do a Q&A. Yes. I was curious you,
0: you mentioned how you wrote this-
1: I never take. I never do outlines at all. I never write character sketches. I think about them a little bit, and that's basically it. I. I just think of a lot of it's kind of extraneous. Um, now, there's something else you said uh, about. What did you ask about my other books besides that? I, I asked
0: if in your other books, I mean, it sounded like this book
1: you wrote in the voices in the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering what happened in your earlier books that was different. I, I never had the muse whispering in my ear. I had a scene in uh, my book, Crossing Eden, where uh, there's a, 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 a sideshow talker telling a, um, a fable for the ages. And it's just like a little over a page. And I wrote one, one sentence every day for a month with no idea what the next sentence was going to be. And, no, and not only that, no inspiration for the next sentence. So it was just like the low point of creativity. I mean a month. I thought it was. It, it turned out to be pretty good. Later on, I hated it. so I didn't even want to read it. Right? It, was, it, it just because it was a thousand-page book. It just wasted a month. That stupid little fable thing, you know. But it turns out it was really good. <laughs> I mean, I read it later. I liked it. Like two years later, I really, oh, actually, it's pretty good. In fact, I I, read, I gave it to my dad, he said, oh, this is really good. Where'd you get it from? I mean, where'd I get it from? I wrote it. <laughs> really? Yeah, I made it up. It was hor- a horrendous experience, but, so no, I never had a book like happen like this before, ever. Awesome. And that's why my, my publisher said. It, it's also for style, it's thinking of different ways to use words. Um, so I think that's what makes my writing, at least interesting to me, is uh, the characters don't, they have sentences, right, that are unpredictable. You wouldn't guess they would say something this way. I try to write things in a different way. Um, that's why I say, when I read these writers that I really like, whether it's Truman Capote or, or Isabel Allende, um, Joan Didion, uh, again, uh, Roberto Bolaño, or Paul Bowles, they're just saying things in ways that are unpredictable. It's just interesting, and, and for some people think you can't, there isn't much difference between genre fiction and literary fiction. There's a huge difference. I just feel the people are, are the reading equivalent of colorblind, right, or they're tone deaf. Maybe they can't, a writer was telling me this a couple of days ago, maybe they can't tell the difference. Maybe they just, they. they or we're talking about uh, singers who uh, try to teach my music to, and they're really good singers, but I have to sing the same line to them five times. They can't, and this uh, music, uh, uh, um, this friend of ours, um, Emmett Sargent, said uh, he said it's just like their brains don't work like that. They get stuck in a loop on how they want to sing that line, they can't sing it back. And I think people see fiction like that. I think they really honestly can't tell, uh, which is too bad, because you have to be creative with language, I really think. Um, some writers just aren't. Um, uh, word repetitions, they don't care, doesn't mean anything to them. Uh, I see it all the time, I'm reading um, uh, uh, one of the Clive Custer books, I mean he's dead, but he's got somebody writing for him. and he's. Uh, yeah, he's, seriously, he's not—they're not being uh, uh, channeled from another world. But this writer, who's sold tons of books, is—he, I mean, he's a good storyteller. I like it, but his writing is not very good at all. I mean, it's really—it's stunningly dull, and I mean, uh, stylistically, and it's, it's just a lot of word repetition. It's really kind of clunky. You know, I don't care because I'm just zooming through the story, which I like. But, but still, you know, I just—I don't know. Some people just don't really get it. Um, and, then, and then a lot of the really beautiful writers uh, just don't have any story. Maybe they think it's okay. Um, who is it that wrote uh, Gilead? What's her name? Marilyn, Ro- Marilyn Robinson. Robinson. Oh yeah, I read her book, Home. I thought, and she's a super good writer for style and language and everything. But honestly, I read over a weekend, I was up in Squavelli, and it was like a direct injection of Novocaine in my brain. Okay? <laughs> it was super boring. She had, like, nothing happened in the book. It was repetitive, too. You know, so your brother comes back, and I really appreciate you being, I really appreciate you doing everything, for, I really appreciate that too. Then he goes upstairs, and comes down, I'm really glad you, you had be here. I really appreciate that, too. We had the same conversation, like, 20 times. Wow, seriously, no. You both need to be killed, okay? The house needs to blow up with a gas explosion or something, okay? Something has to happen in this book. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. So, uh... That's what I say. Literary writers, have something happen. Uh, genre writers, try to write better, OK? I don't know. I mean, I call this a literary novel. I don't know. It's just uh, it's uh, th- th- what's what's original about this book, and my publisher and I looked this up, a, a dystopian novel about eugenics. There were none. None. My, my agent said the same thing. She said it's the most original book she'd ever read. My publisher said the same thing a few weeks before. I said, yeah. So then I started looking them up. Eugenics, dystopian novels, there's really nothing like it at all. Um, and it's kind of like, so, so in um, uh, Testaments and Handmaid's Tale, there's a war going on. Have you guys, anybody read The Handmaid's Tale? Right. So there's a war going on. But she only, in, in those two books, she only gives us like four sentences about it. It's happening over there in California. So she decides not to do it. I decided to show the war. I, While well, I have all the other stuff going on, but I decided to show the war. Um, so, uh, and I guess that's why I broke, brought up the German thing. I forgot. See, I, my mind wandered off. It, it, just think of the book as if Julian Breen were a college senior at Heidelberg University in Germany in 1943. That's what the model for this book would be. Okay, so it's dangerous in Germany domestically, and and the desolation is out there in the Soviet Union. You don't want to go there. So um, anyway, that's what this book... It's, It's a love story because it's about a love of society. It's not just Julian and his girlfriend Nina. It's not just Julian and his parents, or Nina and her sister. It's about the necessity of love in society. Have love went out over hatred? Have love went out over killing. Um one of the characters says somewhere through in the book, halfway through, he says, uh, this war has to end before somebody wins. So and then um, yeah, and at the end, uh Julian says this line, which is sort of about what this whole book is about. He says, uh, let's see where is it? Uh Oh, yeah. And he says, um, uh, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, for, for the, the victory of all peoples who refuse to deny that life is solely concerned with love. And that's really what this book is about. So when I say it's a beautiful love story, that's what the book is, is really about the necessity of affection for fellow human beings, to conquer those who have no affection for their fellow human beings. And, uh, and want to eradicate everybody they, they dislike. And, and um, it does have a happy ending. <laughs> it's funny, my professor said, it's not a happy ending. Of course it is, what? So I had to, I had to recount it for him, okay? <laughs> goes, oh well, yeah. okay, yeah, I guess, yeah. What, of course it is, it's a happy ending. I like happy endings. Sid Stiebel said once, uh, happy endings are inevitable as inevitable as, uh, as sad endings. I don't like books that have a down ending. We all die, who needs that in our fiction, right? <laughs> So, uh, anyway, that's, that's how I kind of think about anything. Well, uh, is there any, anybody else has any questions? You guys are tired of hearing me. And so, okay. Um, yeah? Um, when you were starting writing, were you disciplined to begin with, or were you all over the map until you hunkered down and figured out a schedule? Um, well, mm-hmm. Crossing Eden was 1,086 pages. It took me, I don't know, 12, 14 years to write. My first novel, Down by the River, published by Viking, took me five years. It's not a five year book. Uh, my novel, Naughty, actually began in the early 2000s and published it in 2016, I think. So I wrote sporadically. And I, I didn't know. No, this is the only book I've ever written like this. And now the new book is kind of going along the same way. I don't really know why. It's just those books, maybe I wasn't as mature a writer. Maybe I didn't really know as much. Of, I mean, I knew how to write. But I didn't, and I was still dedicated. I wrote a couple pages a day. I tried to. Uh, the writer's uh, late, uh, Sue Grafton, said she always write uh, like a couple pages a day, not more, not less, just two pages a day. Just move it along. Right? Two pages a day, um, even for 300 days, gives you 600 pages for the year. That's you taking two months off. So uh, people usually writing, beginning writers, have no patience at all. We hear the story, well, if I could only, if I could get like three months off, go to a cabin, I could write my novel. What? You just be sure they're never going to write one, right? If you need to go somewhere to write, you're just never going to do it. it. You have to have uh, a habit of being. Um, uh, Matt Pellinari, who's just barely surviving here in the front row, uh, <laughs> when he was writing uh, Land Without Evil, he said, I mean, he was working a nine to five job, right? And then, and then writing at night, okay? Three in the yeah, exactly. Not. Uh, you know, not zooming around and binge watching shows and all that. I mean, I always think it's funny people say I don't have time to read. Yeah, did you see a, a Game of Thrones? I was watching all weekend. <laughs> what? <laughs> or we went to a movie. Oh, we went to. You would have no time to read. Oh no no. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But for my for myself, I don't really care. If Somebody wants they do what they want to do. Okay, you just won't ever get written. But you have to have. So I'm always. So Matt was what he essentially did is he gave up essentially use social life in some ways, right, to write. The job he had to have, and then he made, he made writing his priority. Um, so you find your own level. You decide how much you really want to do it. I will say we've had two people at the conference over the years who both told me they hated their jobs and they're going to give themselves two years to make it as a writer. I go, well, you should just send, while you're doing that, you send your resumes out, okay? And and one of them had to go back to work, right, I think. (laughs) And then then another one who had a a novel called, um, Greg Fletcher had a novel called California Purples, it's really good, Uh, could not see his way to editing the book. It needed to be edited, it was good, it had a lot of promise. What happened to him is he, next time I talked to him was right after my dad died, he goes, yeah, uh, well, actually, he met a he met a woman, fell in love, and she made him quit writing to and get a job. And then when I talked to him, when my dad had died, he's I said, "So what happened?" He goes, "Yeah, well, we're not together anymore, and I'm uh, I'm having to live in a I think some camera store or something like that, you know." And he's never written anymore because because he didn't really have the drive in him to write. So I asked these two my two mentors, "Did you?" I mean, did you guys know I would publish a book? And they both told me like several years apart. Uh, yeah, you, I said, why? They said, you seem really serious about it. So, I mean, who can really tell, right? But, uh, but um, I guess I wanted to do it. My dad wanted me to do it. So uh, I didn't do it because dad wanted me to do it, but that was an encouragement. And he gave me the time and the place and the ability to do it. Um, and then I had to f- uh, decide, and I, would just, I just liked the idea of it. So um, anyway, that's how it happened. Metropolis. The cover is done by um, a woman named uh, uh, Angela Lison. She's from Bristol in the UK. My, my um, friend of mine, Laura Hannafin, friend of Marianne's, who designs books for publishers, uh, found her and this cover. Found a bunch of them. This is the one we like the best. And the back is from a, a game called The Order. Uh, it's a video game from, I think, the 90s. Yeah. Joe Staczynski uh, did it. And uh, it's kind of funny because uh, this we got from Angela. I mean, it costs $1,000, but everyone said, well, it's pretty cheap for for this. But this is owned by Sony, okay? So uh, I told Laura that, and she says, well, you're never going to get the rights from Sony. Okay, so I called my accountant. I said, Randy, so do we do any business with uh, Sony? He said, "Uh, we're 50-50 partners with peanuts worldwide with Sony. And my attorney said, they're just going to give you the, the rest of that. It's not going to be a problem. It still took a couple months to get the right person, but yeah, that was not a problem at all. Wow, that was lucky, huh? Yeah, yeah. And so the other thing that's fun, by the way, is go to my website, metropolisthebook.com. It's really funny. Uh, it's got tons of pictures. And we, what we did is we created a slideshow of the book. So it's the images we found that sort of correspond and then text from the book. And, and if you're too lazy to read a lot of the book, then you can just... <laughs> You can just sli- go through the slideshow and, and find out if the book seems interesting to you. Yeah. Now, wait a second. Don't say no. It's, a, it's just a way to, to, it's just like reading the, read book. I know that, but what? What? <laughs> I'm just saying it's a fun. It's a Make
0: sure you tell them that the books are down there now, and they have to buy one, so
1: you to them. Oh, really? You guys had no idea I was going to go on and sign books here? Okay. Okay. By the way, when we do this, um, I don't care if I know you or not. You guys have to, you have to tell me how to spell your name because I'm super tired now and I've made mistakes. When somebody says hey, it's Tom, I didn't know it was T H O M. Okay, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, I've had weird spellings of names. and just just want to be sure. Okay, because I'm already. F- okay. Anyway. All right. Thanks everybody uh, for coming here. I really appreciate it. Um,